As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Ballbusters podcast. Old black magic has me in its spell. Old black magic that you weave so well. Those icy fingers up and down my spine. The same old witchcraft when your eyes meet mine. Same old tingle that I feel inside And then that elevator starts its ride Down and down I go Round and around I go Like a leaf caught in a tide No dolphins were harmed in the recording of this broadcast And gluten-free We now return to Ballbusters podcast already in violation It's been a long time since I've used OBS to do something, and I am very happy to be doing it on OBS. Da! Wait, da! Because you can see all this stuff. And I... So my, my father, who is awesome in very many ways, and taught me a lot, and is a good guy, and uh, has all good intentions, okay, when it comes to peace, when it comes to uh, sovereignty when it comes to being in charge of thyself and knowing thyself and learning skills and becoming a real man, like a man who can handle things and handle life and handle home and all that stuff. Um, being able to do things on your own without having to be reliant on someone to fix it for you and that type of stuff or build it for you. Um, taught me how to do lots of stuff and can do a lot more on his own than I, than I can probably. And uh, also, he is very constitutional-minded and believes in individual freedoms, as every good American should. And that is probably what led him to be a member of the John Birch Society. And he invited me on to sit in on one of them. And uh, it was good information. I mean, it was... About January 6th and what really happened, and like there's like a counter um, documentary to go against the one that was talking about the insurgents and blah, 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 lies, right? The, the domestic terrorism and they're all bad, blah, blah, blah. 
It showed you what really happened. It showed you a woman getting shot in the face for breaching a door that like 10 other people were banging on. Her head sticks out. The guy's got his gun held and just kills her. And she was a veteran. Another person died in another section. They were sprayed enough times that they just had like a cardiac arrest. It, the people who were being brutalized were the people that were the quote-unquote domestic terrorist protesters. So I don't want to hear any shit. But anyway, the whole point is I agree that you know having political prisoners for as long as we have had them is a terrible thing. But here's the thing that I don't get. How do they not blame Trump for part of that as a John Birch society? Um, why are we still waving his flag when he brought upon us bioterrorism in the form of a vaccine? Um, why are we still cheering his name? We're not. I'm not. But that's why I, I – when it came to them, I just kind of like something's wrong. Something's not right. So – and aren't there more pressing matters? Like we're like currently at war and everybody is a potential victim. Your children are being targeted in schools by perverts who want to rape them and teach them to be gay or some other non-gender thing that they just made up. And they want them to decide before the age of seven, that magic age, where once you're, that impression has been put on you and the trauma has been induced, it's really hard to ever fix that because it's it's like a record. It gets it's a, it gets put into the grooves, you know, and it's like it gets embedded, the the... The needle's going to always see the dude, the dude from that. You know what I mean? And it's always going to play that tune. So we don't want that. And we want to stop that. That is something that should be not even something to question. Um, it's insanity. It's illogical. Um, all the things I've heard about with the World Health Organization, this climate nonsense with these executive orders, that's dictatorship. Executive orders are only supposed to affect the executive branch. They're not supposed to affect us on a day-to-day life. The federal government has no jurisdiction outside of their 10 by 10 in Maryland. None! I'll say that again in case you didn't hear me. None! In the states, if they're doing unconstitutional things, they have... They're null. Whatever whatever act they're trying to push upon the people, they have forgotten who runs the place. They're just the... It's like, it's like if you had a mutiny at your job and the employees started running you around. What the f... Is that? Oh, we just got to sit by because we have this contract with them that says they shouldn't do that. And we keep on telling them about it. But yet they still keep on murdering everybody. What the hell? Well, then uh, fire them. Throw them out the door and don't necessarily open it first. Throw them through it. So anyway, because that kind of piqued my interest, and I remember having read something a long time ago about the um, John Birch Society. I wasn't even reading a book about the John Birch Society. They were just going over the history of... It might have been in St. Joseph of Wisconsin. I can't really remember which book it was, but it was in a couple different ones where there's like a one or two sentence blurb about it, not really that detailed, but basically saying that John Birch Society may have been started off with intentions of being this, but it was bought off and altered and became counter, you know, what do you call it, controlled opposition throughout its history. And that it, you know, they're going to lead, they're the Pied Piper that's going to lead people over a cliff into their death at some point, into the death pit of socialism. So, or 
if you want to talk about, you know, digital biometrics and carbon credits, that's that's like full-scale communist socialism, right? So, this is a video on huge, huge Tom, huge tube. It's going to be huge. Now, that was not Donald Trump I'm, I'm making fun of. It is actually Dave Fusillo. Dave Fusillo is a guy who sells cars in upstate New York. So it was Fusillo-sized Fusillo huge. Okay. You're so, listening uh, to the Republic Broadcasting Network. The Republic Broadcasting Network. Two people who, are, who financed the Nazi movement were two Jewish bankers, the Warburgs and uh, Max Oppenheimer. Right, while well, Prescott Bush did the whole thing. And <laughs> yeah, he was right in there with them. Sure he was. But, you know, it, it goes back even farther than that, right Right to the Protestant Reformation. And it, and if people, all people have to do, all the Protestants out there, God bless all of you. Martin Luther. All you have to do is go back and read what Martin Luther had to say. And his words that were written around 1500, 1600 area, they're still applicable today. 1517. Say again? They are indeed, because uh, he was speaking from the heart. Right. He wrote more concisely about the Zionist uh, problem than even Henry Ford. Oh, yes. Which is hard, you know, because from a spiritual perspective, I, I see Mensheviks and I see Bolsheviks. And I see Bolsheviks creating the death and the strife and the war because they believe that ball power comes out the end of a gun barrel. Oh, yeah, that was Leon Trotsky. Right, and, and then it was you also have the Mensheviks that we have here who believe that power comes through control of the soul and their whole object is to wage war on each individual's spiritual morality. Well, that's the real Satanism there. Well, they're both Satanists. Yes, that's Satanists. Right, they're both Satanists, and, but we've got the Mensheviks here and around the world we've got these Bolsheviks doing what they do. And it's all a Zionist organization. Two, oh, it is two different groups of Zionists. It's, uh, and it's 5,000 years old. It's not something that started last week. No, sir, it hasn't. 5,000 years old. That puts it right around the time of the Canaanites. Oh, wait, it's called Bobbusters. Hey, see, look, there's a tie-in. And Eustace, God bless you and the work you do. You too, Rick Adams. Thank you, brother. Thank God, you, it's sir. a pleasure always. Thank you. Thank you. All right, and uh, our number is 800 313 Four, three. Eustace Mullins, our guest, he is uh, quite a knowledgeable man. He lived through the era that we could only imagine living through, from the Depression to uh, World War One, World War Two, and uh, he knows whereof he speaks from personal witness, and that makes all the difference in the world. And uh, Eustace, we have Rudy in Texas now. Hello, Rudy. Hello, Rick. How are you tonight? Good, very good. Glad we could squeeze you in. Oh, me too. I'm so glad to be able to talk with you and Mr. Mullins tonight. Sure. I have a lot of things that I would like to... Now, here's where it starts to get good. So, this is the point of the of the uh, show tonight. It's about John Birch Society. So, I would turn your ear dial up a little bit on this part. ...to discuss, but there's one thing in particular that I heard... Mr. Mullins say on a previous interview, I believe it was with Jack McLam. Yes. He had, just in passing, he mentioned that at one time, uh, or he was there when uh, the John Birch Society was founded and David Rockefeller had something to do with uh -huh. it. Yeah, we've, could you, right. Could right. you elaborate on that a little bit sure. for me? 
Well, it was Nelson Rockefeller that set it up. <laughs> Nelson Rockefeller, okay. Yeah, and I, I had two friends of mine there, John Hooker and his son, West Hooker, mm-hmm. uh, were there at that president. I mean, John, John Hooker was a powerful Chicago realtor, mm-hmm. and he had some interest with uh, Rockefeller. And they set up the uh, uh, John Birch Society, and uh, uh, one of the Rockefeller's company was National Biscuit Company, and so they they bought the uh, Wells Candy Company yeah. from Robert Wells. Was it like ten million dollars or something? Oh, I don't know, but it was. Funny. But it was overinflated, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, it was very inflated. Yeah, because see, we did this program with uh, Michael Collins Piper oh, from I the see. American Free Press, and he said exactly the same thing you're saying now. Oh, oh yes. Hmm. So this is a way that they can play both sides against the middle, I guess. Well, that's exactly right. And the John Birch Society was set up to control because you see. The uh, Ford Foundation and the other foundations had been so exposed as pro-communist and anti-American that mm-hmm. they needed to get the people back into something which they thought was respectable. Oh. And so they created the John Birch Society out of whole cloth, and uh, it was a repeat of the Ford Foundation and the others. But uh, Henry Ford again rolling in his grave. Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> Uh, incredible what they did to that company, and then they made it public. They put it on the stock exchange, and uh, that was the end of it. His uh, his progeny sold out, unfortunately. Oh, yes. They all sold out for many millions of dollars. For a mess of pottage, as the scripture says, you know. <laughs> it was a mess, all right. <laughs> they sold their birthright. Uh, yes. Rudy, so you bring up a good question now, you see, about the... Uh, about the formation of uh, the Birch Society, because, uh, uh, as I said, we had uh, Mike Collins Piper talk about it, but I didn't realize uh, that you, Eustace, were right on the scene at the time. Well, no, I wasn't on the scene. I merely heard... No, no, Eustace, I oh, mean. Oh, Eustace was, yeah. Eustace was on the scene at the time. You well, were I wasn't actually on the scene, but uh, uh, Revlo Oliver was one of the founders of yeah. the Birch Society. Right, right. And right. I've spent he, a lot of time... He was forced out, too. Uh, he was forced out mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he he wouldn't uh, go along with the pro-Israel policy. Right, right, right. Well, thank you for answering that question and setting it straight for me. I'm sure my Bercher friends will be glad to know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true because it. Uh, you know, I was once a Bercher myself, and a lot of people were were uh, joiners and felt that it did, and it did a lot of good work in many ways. It certainly did, but uh, unfortunately, they didn't realize who was really uh, in control there. And there were always questions about Mr. Welch and his um, his philosophies and his tactics and so forth. So, you know, now it all comes out, and people know now what they probably didn't know then at the time, you know? Well, I've still got a copy of Robert Welch's book, uh, The Politician, yeah, which I accused Eisenhower of being a communist, and Eisenhower was never a communist. He always worked for the communists. Well, I don't know now, 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 wait a minute now. Didn't Robert Welch say he never actually accused him of being a oh. communist? Well, he did not. Now, that was distorted, and, yeah. uh, but uh, it became gospel, so nobody ever challenged that. Right. Well, you know, Eisenhower never, never wanted to sue. He didn't want anybody to read oh, it. Oh, he never, uh, I don't think he ever complained about it in any way. No, he did. He was very nervous about it, but he felt that most people would not have read it, and certainly the controlled media would not have uh, published it and uh, given it any uh, any sort of uh, publication uh, uh, across the the television medium or the radio networks at the time, or especially the New York Times. You know, they they wouldn't they wouldn't want to give it any credence at all because they were bought and paid for then. Yeah, if they had been bought and paid for for a hundred years, my goodness. Oh, and J.P. Morgan and Rothschilds, you know, actually. 
bought the New York Times I know. from the Salzberger family. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They put up the money. <laughs> of course, of course. And, you know, they did the same thing, uh, by the way. And, Rudy, you could stay on the line for this. Okay. Uh, they did the same thing, the, the powerful international banking families, with the colleges at Harvard, uh, oh, Yale, yes, and so forth. They actually set up the history department. They paid to have the uh, sciences, uh, the, the various and sundry, uh, what we now call social studies history departments, civics, and so forth, so they could control the, uh, the publishing of books, the textbooks that would be used, and literally the chairmanships of those departments were bought and paid for by these banking uh, conglomerates. So they had to say what they were being paid to say. You know, he who, who pays the piper calls the tune. And that's exactly what, what is the case today with the uh, publication of the New York Times and so forth. They're no different now than they were then, only they're probably a little more bold about it today. They're very bold now. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, George Baker, who was our... J.P. Morgan Sparker and a lot of enterprises. Mm -hmm. I put up all the money for the Harvard Business School. Absolutely. You put up $25 million in cash. Exactly, exactly. There you go. All right, Rudy, anything else? Well, I just wanted to say that I really do admire and respect Mr. Mullins and you for this, and I thank God for things like Radio Radio Free Austin here Mm -hmm. in Austin and the Republic. Broadcasting Network, because otherwise we wouldn't know the truth. Exactly, and uh, you said the magic words. Thank God. Amen, Amen. Ruby. Thank you, Rudy. Good night. Yes, sir. Well, you know, I I always do that. I I always give thanks. All right, so you kind of get the idea, plus you got a little extra information there on what's going on with the John Birch Society. So now we're going to read that actual article from Michael Collins Piper that was published in 2005. You guys seem pretty young, but... Uh, apparently he's dead, now that I'm all situated. Okay, so it says, The Barnes Review, A Journal of Nationalist Thought and History, Volume Number 11, Number 4, July-August of 2005. And it says, Something 50, John Birch Society Exposed? Question mark. Michael Collins Piper, in the highly controversial article... The author tells of his membership in the John Birch Society, perhaps the shortest membership in quotation marks on record, since it took only a matter of minutes to realize that something seemed to be seriously amiss with the patriotic group. My one-minute membership in the John Birch Society. Okay, so here it goes. It would sure to be one of TBR's, that's the name of this thing here, most controversial articles ever, that's a little bit of marketing, an American nationalist ref- reflects on his um, okay. An American nationalist reflects on his experiences with the John Birch Society and his increasing doubts about its effectiveness as a voice for independent-minded American patriots. By Michael Collins Piper, many questions about the John Birch Society have passed through my own mind since I first became aware of the existence of the John Birch Society. When I was a 16-year-old high school student, honestly, I'm fully aware that there will be many good people who will be utterly inflamed by my remarks, but let's, let's let the chips fall where they may. My first awareness of the John Birch Society... Now, guys, when people bring things to your attention, it's not to try to like insult you. I mean, some people do that. Maybe that is exactly why they're doing it. But when I'm bringing it to your attention, it's out of care. It's out of concern. It's out of, hey... Would you still be doing this if you knew this type of thing? And would you maybe do other things differently with this knowledge? And would it maybe make you 
more successful and less in danger. Well, then that's why I'm sharing it with you. And if you want to hate the messenger, I'm not here. To, as as many people will attest, and some some more people as of yesterday, I'm not here to make friends. Okay, this isn't a popularity contest with me. As your as my you know f- always in flux support group will uh, attest to. My first awareness of the John Birch Society came. Okay, yeah, that's it. That's the one. Okay, my first awareness of the John Birch Society came at a time when I was becoming embroiled, for better or for worse, in political affairs. Having pretty much determined on my own, with no input from my friends or family, that I was some sort of conservative, <laughs> conservative, I quickly began the process of trying to learn as much as I could about the various right-wing, quote-unquote, political organizations. That led to my local libraries, where I savored all the standard conservative writings that were available. However, I did not restrict my reading to literature that reflected my own point of view. Always open-minded, I was curious to see what the other side had to say. As a consequence of that, I zipped through a wide variety of volumes coming from what might be described as the liberal left, and I continually came across references to a mysterious and controversial John Birch Society and its founder, Robert Welch. In my own mind, I said, if the liberals consider the John Birch Society and its founder to be so bad, then they must be pretty good. Yeah, that's how you, that's how you usually factor out media, right? Well, if they hate them, it's probably something good there. No sooner, but they did that with Trump too, and completely duped us all, didn't they? So anyway, no sooner had I, hey, that's actually an analogy for this thing, isn't it? Jeez, I just stumbled on that, all clumsy like. Anyway, moving on. No sooner had I made up my mind to try to find the address and contact the John Birch Society than there, lo and behold, in my own local library, I spotted a copy of the John Birch Society publication, American Opinion, sitting right on the shelf, side by side, with so-called mainstream publications. I believe now it's called the New American, because the old American apparently wasn't good enough, because, you know, communism. Anyway, at that moment, having only had a John Birch Society publication in my hand for the first time ever, for less than several minutes, in fact, I realized that something here was very much amiss. Did I do that with enough dramatic effect? With great excitement... I began leafing through the professionally produced John Birch Society Journal, thrilled to have access to the forbidden facts and hidden information that I just knew I couldn't get from Time or Newsweek or even the pages of the conservative weekly U.S. News and World Report. That particular issue of American Opinion had a chart that captured my attention. It was an overview, country by country, of communist quote-unquote influence by percentage in various countries of the world. I knew, of course, that communists were in control of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, and that they also had widespread influence throughout the rest of the West. I was acutely aware that communist influence in one form or another had gained a toehold in my own United States of America. Yes, I'm pretty sure there's a guy named Senator Joseph McCarthy that tried to tell everybody that. However, I was surprised to see that According to the John Birch Society, communist strength in America was far more powerful than I would have estimated. I don't recall the exact percentage, but I recall that it was extraordinarily high. 
Thank God, I thought, as I studied the chart, that there are a few countries such as Argentina and Chile that are in the hands of anti-communist military leaders. <laughs> yes, I'm sure he understands the, the folly of that now. But when I turned to those two republics, I found that the John Birch Society listed communist influence there to be in the range of 70 to 90 percent. I was startled, needless to say. Argentina pretty much is owned by the Jesuits. Maybe they know something I don't know, I thought. I continued to read on. Next, I turned to the state of Israel. Based on my own earlier research, I knew that Israel's economy was based on a strictly socialist model funded by billions in U.S. tax dollars because socialism doesn't work and you always need artificial help. And we are the ones who pay for it. I'm throwing that in myself. And now back to that. In addition... I was also aware of the predominant influence of Russian and Europe, I'm sorry, Eastern European Jews in the worldwide communist movement and knew that many Jews of a Marxist bent had been involved in establishing the Jewish state. What's more, I also knew that not only had Israel been strategically assisted in its founding years with arms and support from the communist bloc, but also that Tiny Israel was the only nation in the Middle East with a flourishing communist party. With all that in mind, imagine how surprised I was to learn, at least according to the John Birch Society and its American Opinion uh, chart, that communist influence in Israel was hardly more than 10 to 20 percent, with an exclamation point for emphasis. Photograph of Robert Welch at Podium, which you don't actually see. You just see a picture. Uh, you just see a block that says those words in it, and then it says, Caption. Robert Welch, above, blamed agent provocateurs hired by the insiders for infiltrating his John Birch Society and sowing anti-Semitism to convince the public that the Birchers hated Jews. In the mid-1960s, Robert DePew and journalist Westbrook Pegler were dropped from the society because they were considered anti-Semitic. Uh, Revilo P. Oliver was eased out in 1966 after he said the conspiracy that is destroying us we are told, is a conspiracy of communists or of Illuminati or of Jews. Most writers on this subject are so anxious to convince readers that they imply that the conspiracy they identify is the root of all evil and that if only by some miracle all the Bolsheviks or Illuminati or Jews were vaporized, we'd have nothing more to worry about. The trouble with the, that vision, of course, is that every educated man knows it can't be so. That's all, um, you know, in quotes. But here's the problem with that, and I'm, this is me talking now. Um, yeah, I would go so far as to say, yes, the Bolsheviks quite literally are, and like 99% of them are of the J persuasion, but those people are not just regular Js, they are Frankists. Frankists. Get that word stuck in your head and illuminate that Illuminati word, because that's outdated, all right? And you don't have to say Jews anymore. You can be a whole lot less abrasive and say the goddamn same thing by saying the Frankists. And then you're a lot more accurate about who it actually is. All right? At that moment, having only had a John Birch Society publication in my hand for the first time ever, for less than several minutes, in fact, I realized that something was very much amiss. Skimming the rest of the art... Oh, I'm sorry. Skimming the rest of the chart, I soon saw that in the Birch worldview, Israel was probably the only serious bastion of anti-communism on the entire face of the planet. Not even the anti-communist regimes in Argentina and Chile seemed to qualify. It was then I knew, pure and simple, that those 
at the highest levels of the John Birch Society had fallen under the influence, perhaps the outright control of the insidious force of political Zionism. That was enough for me. I knew then that the John Birch Society was not for me. My membership, quote-unquote, because they had just read it and was interested in it, and then it's like, nope, I'm good, in the John Birch Society, truth be told, lasted little more than a minute. This is what's called discernment, guys. Nobody uses this anymore. They just said, oh, you're for this stuff? Okay, I'm on this side. Until it's not popular anymore. Right? Yeah. Little did I know, at the, and truth is never going to be popular, but right will always be right, even if everybody else in the world says it's wrong. Little did I know at that time, however, that I had learned quite fast and quite easily what thousands of good, honest members of the John Birch Society had to learn with much more pain over a long period of years. I had no idea that there were disillusioned former members of the John Birch Society all over the United States who had, in one fashion or another, figured out just what I had discovered on my own without ever even having been a member of the John Birch Society. So he's saying he's never been a member, but he figured it out fast. Some four years later, when I went to work for Liberty Lobby, the populist institution in Washington, D.C. that published the weekly national paper, The Spotlight, I learned the full history of the Zionist infiltration and manipulation of the John Birch Society. At the spotlight, I gained access to fascinating archives researchers had accumulated over the years, pointing to the strange origins and directions of the John Birch Society. Hey, do you want to go one more step further? The spotlight was infiltrated too. But we'll get into that later. And you know what? One of my favorite authors, uh, Donald Jeffries, he references the Spotlight magazine articles often. But that doesn't mean like a bunch of good information and then the little tiny slight, like I was saying, slight adjustments to turn you off course. Just little micro adjustments. Just like just like when they're talking about cloud seeding and, and moving clouds. Just these little tiny adjustments, these little micro adjustments to get you away from being... Uh, effective with your energies and efforts. I also discovered the fact that... Okay. Okay, so here it is. This is the important part. I also discovered the facts about the little-known Rockefeller connection to the John Birch Society. In the August 1965 edition of Capsule News, Morris Beale, now deceased, laid it bare. He wrote... I gotta scroll down. Excuse me. Robert Welch and his brother Jimmy, which is James, right? Or... Sometimes they even call him John. I don't know why, but they do. Uh, well, James, anyway. So James received a tremendous payoff from the House of Rockefeller two years ago for organizing the John Birch Society and sitting on the communist lid for the past seven years. So he said this in 1965. So seven years before that would be 1958. Okay. The total payoff was $10,800,000, less the value of the family candy company, which is reputed to maybe... 100000 or $200,000. So like 20 times its value. You get that? Nobody pays 20 times the value for something unless they're giving you something and they're washing the money or, you know what I mean, they're misdirecting what the funds are for by doing a purchase. So I'll, I'll purchase a candy company, but what we're actually doing is this. On October 1st, 1963, Rockefeller's National Biscuit Company announced the purchase, quote-unquote, of the James O. Welch Candy Company of Cambridge, Massachusetts. In Moody's Manual of Industrials and in Standard & Poor's Business Index, uh, National Biscuit Company. Is that what Nabisco is now? Because you would think National Biscuit, Nabisco? I don't know. But anyway, it's called NBC back here. So NBC gave the alleged purchase price 
as 200,000 shares of National Biscuit common stock. According to the Wall Street Journal for October 1st, 1963, NBC common stock was selling for $54 a share on the New York Stock Exchange. Today, now remember when he's saying today, they're talking about 1965, it is selling for $58. Thus, the Welch brothers were given $10,800,000, just like that. Candy people say the whole family business with plants and five sales offices was hardly worth $200,000. Welch will tell those dopes who will believe him that the National Biscuit is not a Rockefeller concern. Again, Moody's manual will trip him up. It lists as two of the directors the names of Roy E. Tomlinson and Don G. Mitchell. Both are members of the Council on Foreign Relations. Oh, goody. The CFR. The, if you want to call Illuminati Illuminati, then that, that's who that is in the United States. And also the communist stronghold that created the United Nations. So, yeah, all those wonderful things, right? Further, they are a pair of Rockefeller's professional directors. Tomlinson is also a director of their Prudential Life and American Sugar Refinery. Uh, just so you know, also, the Council on Foreign Relations has a, a Roman guy as their, as their like, little logo. He's naked on a horse because they're totally not gay and they're totally not, you know, celestial sodomites at all. They definitely aren't into dudes. Totally not. So that's cool, you know. And they're definitely not tied into Rome, who's our real master, right? Nope, nope, sure, they aren't. It was American Sugar that was directly concerned with the financing and embargoing into the hands of communist Russia of into the hands of communist Russia of Cuba in 1959. I'm not sure if that's a sentence that makes sense. Anyway, they made the deal with Castro, which ended freedom on the island of Cuba and made possible those Havana missile bases designed to wipe out America eastern, wipe out American eastern seaboard cities. <clears throat> Excuse me. It also appears that the rock mob financed. I guess that's Rockefeller mob financed and promoted the organization of the John Birch Society. How else could it have gotten millions of dollars worth of newspaper publicity by the phony attacks, quote-unquote, on Welch that came from dramatic suddenness? Right. Sometimes, you know, opposition is still, you know, they say all publicity is good publicity, right? And for the record, in more recent years, famed populist historian Eustace Mullins, <laughs> yes, Eustace Mullins offered... <clears throat> Eustace Mullins, author of The Federal Reserve Conspiracy, The World Order, and other classics, as in Murder by Injection, has said publicly more than once that his research led him to the conclusion that the Birch Society was indeed a creation of the Rockefeller Empire based on precisely the same data that led Beale to research this assessment. So Beale was not standing alone by any means in making these allegations. In the matter of... The privately owned Federal Reserve banking monopoly, the JBS took some mighty peculiar positions. Here's where it gets interesting. In September of 1964, after the death of JFK in 63, in the September 1964 issue of American Opinion, one of Birch's favorite economists, Hans Senholz, Senholz wrote an article about the Federal Reserve System. The article stated as follows. <laughs> the article stated as follows. The control rests absolutely undividedly in the hands of the U.S. president. They, the people who run the Federal Reserve System, 
are agents of the government, not corporate officials with the proprietorship rights and powers customarily of stockholders or of corporations. The Federal Reserve System is not, nor has it ever been, a private banking institution that is busily filling the pockets of the bankers, nor is it the evil product of an international conspiracy of foreign bankers. They said that in 1964, and remember, these are the guys that are supposed to be the uh, the good side, right? The side of the side of <laughs> the. Do you, does anybody in the John Birch Society now know that this was stated in 1964 by the very tip top of the John Birch Society crew? And this is during Birch's life, guys. So we can't say that the reason why it went awry was because he passed away, which is what my position was in the beginning when I first heard it, because that's what it sounded like. The late Norbert Murray, an outspoken Montana patriot who was a career journalist in the mainstream media and former New York publicist for Major Business Interests and Dunn's Review, succinctly described the article as a pack of lies that protected the fraud of the system. Publication of such an article could only mislead good members of the John Birch Society who were trying to puzzle out the myths from the facts about the nature of the Federal Reserve and of the powerful international banking houses that played such a major role in the manipulation of U.S. foreign policy. In any event, while working for Spotlight, I did indeed learn much more about the John Birch Society than I would have ever imagined possible. It was at that point in the late 1970s and early 80s that the John Birch Society shed perhaps any pretense of indifference and began effectively, so began actively promoting the interests of the state of Israel and its powerful lobby in Washington, abandoning any ambiguity about where the Birch Society's controllers stood on the issue of U.S. policy toward the Middle East. All suspect. <laughs> More than just suspects, blatantly screaming it at you. Much to the dismay of longtime John Birch Society loyalists, the Spotlight's hard-hitting senior journalist and legendary Andrew St. George reported at length and in devastating detail on the mysterious maneuverings of the of one John Rees, R-E-E-S, a Britisher by birth and one with quite a murky past who had scrolled his way into the inner circles of the John Birch Society, establishing himself as the real power behind the throne during Robert Welch's declining days. The spotlight pinpointed Reese's amazing role in operating his own intelligence and spying operation, which was, in many respects, quite akin to that of the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith, an important adjunct of Israel's intelligence agency, the Mossad. Guys, this is what I'm talking about. So you join a list, you think you're doing right, but you have a group membership and people know who you are, what your name is, and what your beliefs are. You've already profiled yourself and you've let the threat assessment occur. They know where you are, they know what you think, and they know where your family lives. Do you understand why groups are bad? Like, I would love to, like join a group but i just know that when you do that it comes with all the baggage and when people are just throwing the word domestic terrorist around like it's like it's water and it doesn't have any meaning anymore but it has plenty of meaning to psychopaths and gun guys with guns you know you know guys with guns that have that have plastic metal badges i'm saying you don't want to be part of that. You don't want to be involved in something like that and be dragged down just because you're affiliated with something or have yourself be targeted 
or your family put in danger or your property be at risk because of some sort of and, – and, and just because it's basically built up to be a honeypot where you you know they're going to attract people who are in opposition to what their real plan is and that's on purpose so that they can control what they're thinking minimize and 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 you know diminish their their effectiveness and and resisting it and also know who to pick off first when the time comes they've already got their list do you understand what i'm saying here this is why i'm worried about my dad because quite literally they just flat out said that this is a spying agency that they are spying on their people and they're in every damn town, guys. Every damn town has a rep. For my own... I'm reading again. For my own part, as a student of the JFK assassination, I discovered the amazing fact that, like Robert Welch in his heyday, the John Birch Society to this day endorses the much discredited Warren Commission fraud that one lone nut assassinated President Kennedy. What the hell? Come on! This wouldn't hold up. This is the reason why this John Birch Society still exists is because people who are in members now don't know about that. The late Morris Beale pointed out early on, on John on June nineteenth, nineteen sixty five. Now this is Morris Beale, in his rambunctious newsletter Capsule News, that Robert Welch had declared Beale's book "The Guns of the Regressive Right." which pointed a finger in the direction of the CIA to be all wrong and told his followers that it was not the CIA, but Lyndon Johnson behind the JFK assassination. Yeah, why can't it be both? According to Beale, here's a quote again, we examined thoroughly all of his 1964 bulletins, which were filled with attacks on Earl Warren and curious expressions of hearty agreement with him on the myth that a communist, meaning the decoy man Oswald, killed Kennedy. In fact, as I pointed out in Final Judgment, my own book on the JFK assassination, Bircher, I'm sorry, Birch founder Welch played a major part in directing conservative attention away from a possible role by the CIA in the JFK assassination and in the direction of the Soviet KGB. This was the very propaganda line of top CIA figures James J. Angleton, the CIA's devoted liaison to the Mossad, and the CIA is run by Jesuits. And guess who created the Jesuits? Crypto Jays! Mossad again, basically. Same thing. So while the Birchers think that Lee Hive. <laughs> so while the Birchers think that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone-nut communist under the direction of the Soviet KGB, the theory put forth by Mossad loyalist Angleton, they are very careful to avoid pointing toward the culpability of the CIA and certainly never ever dare mention the likelihood, as I carefully documented in Final Judgment, that the Mossad also played a critical role in the assassination conspiracy. On November 21, 1988, the Birch Society's New American magazine touted, see now it's called New American, right? The New American magazine touted the Warren Commission report saying that evidence demonstrates beyond a reasonable doubt that Lee Harvey Oswald, one lone communist nut, killed JFK. It says JFR though. <laughs> they said JFR. Uh, typo. Anyway. In any case, however, the John Birch Society's dedication to the obviously dubious claim that one lone communist nut killed JFK remains in force, right? Because he shot, pinged off the wall, through the hoop, nothing but net, right? 
That's because because what are these magic bullets? In 1995, I sent a copy. This is him again. In 1995. I sent a copy of the second edition of my book to a vast array of individuals, inviting them to debate and refute the thesis of the book with me on radio or in writing or in any public forum. One of those to whom I sent a copy of the book was William J. I'm sorry, William F. Jasper, senior editor of the Birch Society's New American. To this day, ten years later, and following the sale of some 50,000 copies of Final Judgment to enthusiastic readers across the country, I have yet to hear from Mr. Jasper. My experiences with the John Birch Society, as far as the issue of the JFK assassination is concerned, were certainly instructive. By my discoveries regarding the Birch's position on the issue came many long years after I had already figured out that the Birch Society was not for me. Based on my other research and that of others and based on the study of Birch publications, their own words will hang them so many times. Certainly there are many fine American patriots who are supporters of the John Birch Society. Indeed, some of my best friends are Birchers, but my own one-minute membership in the John Birch Society was enough for me. Michael Collins-Piper is a frequent contributor to the Barnes Review and the author of Final Judgment, The Missing Link in the JFK Assassination Conspiracy, called the definitive work on the JFK political execution. He is also the author of The New Jerusalem, Zionist Power in America, and The High Priests of War. Order any of these books from TBR Book Club. Okay. So, let's talk about Mike Piper, shall we? Let's have a look. Mike Collins Piper, just by himself. I'm gonna, we're gonna see strangeness here. He was born in 1960, so one would imagine he should be alive right now. But here's the funny part about that. Michael Collins Piper was, not is, was an American political writer. Oh, oh, wait, hold on, guys. So here, here's the here's the Wikipedia bullshit, right? Conspiracy theorist and talk radio host, Piper was a regular contributor to both the Spotlight and its successor, the American Free Press newspapers, backed by Willis Carto and noted for their anti-Semitic and white separatist white nationalist themes. This is the this is the official way that they write history. What the? Why are we Why are we letting this happen? Still, that is enough to infuriate me. To slander people and call them... What does anti-Semitic mean, anyway? I don't like people who try to kill us? Yeah, okay, then I guess everybody should be anti-Semitic, right? If that's what that word means. I, I don't like people who rape children and, and want to kill me. And try to murder me with vaccines. Is that, that, is that, is that what an anti-Semitic is? Or, or does it mean something that, that, that doesn't have any meaning to it because it's a lie? I told you what they are. The Frankists. Alright, so let's see. Let's see if we can get into what killed him. I'm sure it was probably a heart attack, right? Because that's those mysterious and very, very uh, convenient heart attacks. Radio show, the Piper Report. Okay. Anti-Semitism. No, calling the killers the killers when they're the killers is not anti-Semitism, and it's not white nationalism. What the fuck does that even mean? Stop that shit. Oh, Holocaust uh, denier. 
Yeah, well, they did kill a bunch of people, but they were Germans, and now it started in 1945. Uh, do you want to know what... There really was a Holocaust. It was called uh, the Red Cross, owned by the Rothschilds from, you know, because Switzerland has a cross on it, too, and so does the Knights of Malta, right? 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 And so does the Templars, right? 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 So the Red Cross went into those camps, and they were... Do you, does anybody know who, what the, uh, the transfer agreement was? Do you know why those people were in the camps in the first place? Do you guys know what the transfer agreement was? Started in 1936 or 38. They were stamping coins in commemoration. The swastika on one side of the coin, the Star of David on the other. That Germany, under Hitler, was one of the biggest proponents for securing and making sure that the wealth of the Jewish, Jewish people and them had safe passage to Palestine. Meaning they were being escorted there. And they were going to the camps to get ready to go. That's what was going on. And then Red Cross came in, the Rothschilds Red Cross, and they were let in because, hey, nobody, nobody questioned, just like we don't know. We don't question people in white coats. They're doing something good, right? And they vaccinated everybody, and then typhus broke out, and almost all of them died. And they burned the bodies because they were afraid of contagion. And then they're like, oh, Hitler killed a bunch of people and burned them, cooked them. Yeah, uh-huh. You know what they were spraying that gas with, for? Because they thought that typhus was from a bug. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, moving on then. Let's go into uh, death. Piper's body. Oh, okay, good. So now we know that there was something messed up. Yeah, look at that. I said heart attack, didn't I? Piper's body was discovered on May 30th or May 31st, 2015 at the Budget Saver Motel in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. The deputy coroner's report stated that the cause of death was a probable, because that's what we get from a coroner, probable, probable myocardial infraction, uh, ischemic cardiomyopathy, and a coronary artery disease, and listed diabetes as another significant condition. The report indicated that toxicity results were consistent with her findings that no autopsy was conducted. Hold on. The report indicated that toxicology results were consistent with her findings, which means what? They didn't say anything. They didn't say what the findings were. They just, they're consistent with their own. The report indicated that the toxicology results were consistent with her findings. Her findings that it was a heart attack. Is that how you? Is that what toxicology looks for? They look for drugs uh, substances in in residue. That doesn't even make any sense. Oh yeah, it was a heart attack. Uh huh. Sure it was. Sure, there's no foul plea whatsoever. The article gave Piper's age as 54. The guy was only 54 years old, wrote some pretty awesome books, and was probably taken out in 2015, 10 years after that article was written. The books were, and you should probably write these down, Final Judgment, The Missing Link of the JFK in the JFK Assassination Conspiracy in 1993, The High Priests of War in 2004, New Jerusalem, Zionist Power in America, 2004, Target, Trafficant, The Untold Story, Confessions of an Anti-Semite, the first ever critical analysis of the linguistic ledger main underlying the propaganda techniques of the new world. Right. They're, they're, they're calling out the, the fact that they use that word for every goddamn person who's against them. That's the Anti-Decimation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center, hard at work. The Judas Goat, The Enemy Within, 
the golem, a world held hostage. You know what the golem is? It's that thing out of clay that's supposedly this big ogre type thing that you, you write a word on it, you throw it in its mouth, and that's it's, it's the command to go do things. I think they're doing that with shots and technology now to everybody, but whatever. We'll, we'll go on to that later. That's why they're like non-player characters, right? Because you just throw the message to them. And you're like, they're, they're like a little avatar. The new Babylon came out in the 2009. It's called The New Babylon, Those Who Reign Supreme. And then Ye Shall Know the Truth in 2013. And whatever is in that one probably is what got him shot. Or, I mean, got him killed. We're going to finish off with a little bit more Eustace Mullins because he's awesome. It's in a great, fantastic, astounding 360p. So, I mean, you got all that quality going for you, which is nice. I'm not going too far away, so don't get lonely. understand you mean to tell me that the United States government does not own the Federal Reserve System because it's my understanding that the Federal Reserve System controls the money the money of the populace the general people of the United States and are you telling me that it's not the government of the United States the Federal Reserve well that is a secret of the Federal Reserve is that it's not federal and it has no reserves and it's not a system at all it's actually a criminal syndicate it's a criminal syndicate. Well, How can you say that? Tell us about that, Eustace Mullins. Well, I can say that because north of here, there's a millionaire's retreat called Jekyll Island, Georgia, uh, which for many years was the private preserve of the, some of the wealthiest families in the United States. They met there in secret in Thanksgiving of 1910 to draft a money monopoly plan which they intended to force on the people of the United States. And because they met in secret, this was a criminal conspiracy, and the Federal Reserve System came out of a criminal conspiracy. That's why I call it a criminal uh, syndicate. And anyone at the Department of Justice would have to agree with me on that. Now, when they met, apparently, from what I've read, is that they said that at that time it was going to help the farmers because there was going to be more loans that would be available to farmers and that the Federal Reserve System was for the middle-class American people. Is it true? I mean, in the long run, did it turn out to be a benefit to middle-class America, Eustace? Well, their approach was that these very wealthy people were setting up this privately-owned money monopoly to help everyone else. In other words, it was going to be compassion and caring all the way. And there would, it was presented to Congress as a bank reform bill. And... Uh, there were not going to be any more bank failures, there'd be no more monetary panics, there'd be no more financial depressions. And of course, uh, from 1914, when they started an operation, we went right to 1929, the biggest crash we ever had. Was the Federal Reserve System itself, was it also, do you think, partially responsible for World War I, Eustace Mullins? Not partially, totally. Uh, you see, they had wanted to have a major war since 1885. The problem was all the European countries were bankrupt because they had central banks. Whenever you install a central bank in a country, that is a sure road to, to ruin for everyone in that country. 
And we prospered throughout the 19th century because we did not have a central bank. Now, could you explain to me what a central bank is versus, shall we say, the national government bank? Because it's a little bit of verbicide here. We don't know. Federal Reserve, I mean, it seemed to me like the word federal itself, of course, we talked about, had to be a government institution. So if you could tell me the difference there. Well, that phrase was coined by Paul Warburg, one of the original conspirators at Jekyll Island in 1910, for that very reason. He was a very clever person. And um, a central bank uh, is different from an ordinary bank, is that uh, an ordinary bank or a government bank would be a bank of the people to provide the people with money. And uh, a central bank is a privately owned bank, which always takes the name of a country. You have the Bank of England, you have the Bank of Italy. These are privately owned banks which function as government banks, but, and, except that the private owners get all the profits. Mm -hmm. And the people of the countries which have a central bank, they progressively become poorer. Now, when the Federal Reserve Act was passed by Congress in 1913, we had no national debt. The dollar was 100 cents in purchasing power. Today, we have $4 trillion. Where did you and I get $4 trillion of debt? Did you go out and spend a lot of money that you shouldn't have, or did I? Absolutely they not. Don't ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you might spend $4 trillion, but it would take you a little while. But uh, no, all that money not only has been wasted, but it's been deliberately wasted to put us into permanent debt situation. Now, how is this money created? Because you're telling me that the government, our government ourselves, gave up the right to coin this money. And then all of a sudden, the Federal Reserve System has the right to make dollar bills, Federal Reserve notes. Did, was there trickery involved there? But first of all, how did this happen? You talked about 1913. You talked about Jekyll Island. What were the mechanics that led to the change from the government owning the money and issuing the money to its people versus the Federal Reserve? Well, uh, I mentioned the conspiracy at Jekyll Island because it took a lot of plotting to get the people of the United States to accept a privately owned central bank. You see, we had one set up by Alexander Hamilton in 1787, the first bank of the United States. And Thomas Jefferson opposed it, and he got rid of it in uh, 1812. So that caused the War of 1812. The British attacked us again in 1812 because we had, Jefferson had put an end to their bank and they retaliated with the War of 1812. In fact, you will find banking interests behind every major event of world history. They pull the strings. We're just puppets. The governments are puppets and that's why the War of 1812 happened. The Civil War, World War I, World War II, you name it, they're bankers' wars. I've been told and I've heard that World War I, just take that for example, there's probably no reason at all to ever have World War I. Uh, there was an assassination and then there was a demand for an apology and the apology was given and pretty soon shortly after that Europe was entered into the war, the United States was entered into the war and could you explain to me what Belgian relief plan was as far as World War I? The Belgian relief plan was to relieve the Belgians who didn't need any relief. It was actually, you see, in 1916, Germany, through private sources, approached the Allied governments and said, I'm sorry, we can't go on with the game, you know, because to them, to the bankers, war is a game. They set up two opposing teams and have them play each other, 
and they're making money from both sides. So the game had gone on for two years, financed by the Federal Reserve System of the United States in 1914. As I said, they had no money for this war. But by passing the Federal Reserve Act, suddenly the money and credit of the American people was made available to the central banks of Europe to finance the First World War. That's the reason you had it. That's why you had all that bloodshed. That's why you had the suffering. That's why you had the collapse of monarchical governments in much of uh, Europe, all brought about as a banking conspiracy. So in 1916, the Kaiser said, look, uh, we're bankrupt. Uh, we're out of food. We have no fuel. So we're going to sue for peace. Well, this did not fit in with the program of the international bankers because they hadn't even gotten the United States into the war yet in 1916, and that was part of the plan, that we had to get into it. So um, they said, all right, we'll take care of you. We'll get you food, and we'll get you fuel, and we'll get you money. Well, the money was no problem, because these international bankers operate all over the world. They got him the money. Uh, but the food was a different situation. How was the United States to furnish food to Germany so they could continue to fight for another two years? And so... It had to be done through subterfuge, and so they called upon Herbert Hoover, an old Rothschild employee, whom they had hired, by the way, because he had been barred for life on the London Stock Exchange as a notorious swindler, and the Rothschilds said, get this guy, we need him. So uh, he went to work for them. And uh, sure enough, in World War I, they said, Herbert Hoover is the man to set up a Belgian relief commission to feed Germany so we can have another two years of World War. And that's exactly what happened. The great engineer, he was called. He was there, actually, the he great... He engineered a, a two years longer for that war, anyway. Well, he was the great swindler. He was the most notorious promoter of mining stocks uh, in the world. And, uh, you know, uh, he particularly uh, promoted gold mining stocks. And, you know, a gold mine is a mine in which um, someone sells you the stock in a gold mine and they take, you, they take the gold and give you the shaft. <laughs> and so this, is, this was Herbert Hoover's background. He'd always given people the shaft. And so they said, now he's on the biggest swindle of all time. He's going to operate the Belgian Relief Commission. And um, he said, yes, I'll run the Belgian Relief Commission for you. We'll feed Germany with one proviso. I get all the money. And he did. Herbert Hoover came out of World War I and the Belgian Relief Commission as one of the richest men in the world. No, it's my understanding that actually in World War I, 21,000 people in America also became millionaires amid the death and the destruction and the slaughter and the hardships of the soldiers. 21,000 people actually became millionaires. Does war itself, does it create different classes of individuals from a financial standpoint? Well, war is enormously profitable because it's so destructive. You see... Uh, modern technology and modern industry produces so much that the competition drives the prices down, everybody goes bankrupt. So you have a war and it destroys so much that then everybody gets rich again, replacing all the stuff that was destroyed in the war. That's the story of modern uh, economy. I read in your book also, Eustace, that the average working man, what they have said, and we're talking about members of the Federal Reserve, and we're talking about the elitist core, that the average working man should never rise above the certain level, that the rest of the income he takes in, the majority of that should be taken by taxes. Are we in a situation today where the average working man is just barely getting along, spending his whole life working, not being able to enjoy the opportunities and joys of life? 
Well, actually, it's gotten a little worse than that. You've got all these homeless people sleeping under bridges. So it's actually uh, the plan of the international bankers is to have all of the producers, the workers, live on a bare subsistence level. And this, this is the basis of all taxation, of all government control of industry, is to make sure that the workers do not have a comfortable living because they're afraid if they get too comfortable, they won't work as hard, you see. Does that not speak to what's happening right now? Are they not making things way too expensive to live? Are they not making life itself harder or the threat of life being harder uh, just to tax your mind and, and scare you? into consuming and buying more things because you think you have to squirrel away all your nuts for the, you know, the the dark winter. I mean, yeah, there's definitely a good reason to do that and be prepared. Absolutely. But it's also a manipulation because they're going to pick your pockets as this Titanic sinks. They're more concerned about picking your pockets and stealing the gold fillings in your teeth as you sink to the bottom. And this plan was devised by a, the diabolical man, uh, mind of a man named David Ricardo in England in the early 19th century. He was an associate of the Rothschilds. He had become enormously wealthy through associating with the Rothschilds as a stock speculator in London. And so when these people make a lot of money, uh, then they have leisure to sit down and figure out the devilish plans to enslave everybody in the world. For some reason, when you get a lot of money, that's all you can think about is making sure that everybody else in the world is going to work for you for the rest of their lives at a bare subsistence level. This is the plan David Ricardo worked out, and this is the basis of all uh, governmental programs in the United States today. It's to keep the people at a bare subsistence level. Now. We have this Federal Reserve System. Who owns the Federal Reserve, Eustace Mullins? Well, any citizen of the United States will tell you, oh, the Federal Reserve System is owned by the government. Uh, and of course, they've been brainwashed to accept that. You go to any uh, university in the United States, Yale, Harvard, take all the economics courses, they will never tell you that the Federal Reserve System is privately owned. Because the pur purpose of the universities is to misinform you, to keep you deluded. By the way, do you mean to tell me that this program that we're doing today, Eustace Mullins, you'll find out more about the, Civil Re about the Federal Reserve than you will at Harvard or Yale in a full four-year course? Absolutely. In fact, you'll be finding it out for the first time because no one else is going to tell you this. And what they do is they hire, as professors of economics uh, at the major universities, they pay them 100000 a year to prevent them from ever telling their students any of the realities of economic life in America today. They're saying 100000 a year, I'm sorry, $100,000, and this is probably 30 years ago that this was on. I'm thinking this was in the 90s, but it could have been even earlier than that. I'll look in the show notes later. Okay, we have, so you have an ownership of a few, a small group of people in this Federal Reserve? Are there a large group of people? Are there 100 people or 8 people or 20 people that have stock in this Federal Reserve system? Uh, there are 100 families who own the stock of the 12th Federal Reserve Banks. The government has never owned one share of any Federal Reserve Bank. And the present banking chairman of the banking committee uh, in Congress, Henry Gonzalez, he even says that uh, it is a government bank, that it is not privately owned. And how he can say that when I 
I published this book in 1952. It's been in uh, print ever since that the government has never owned a share of stock in the Federal Reserve Banks. Well, the pretext that to put this over on the people is that the, the President of the United States, who has been chosen and elected by the bankers, then chooses uh, people who will serve as Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Uh, and they supposedly control the economic life of the United States. And of course, they're all stooges. Now, if you take money, uh, and if you're the one that can increase the money, or if you can have inflation, inflation or deflation, how does that itself, Eustace Mullins, how can that help or hinder a society, the increase? Of, and were these depressions that we had in this country, were they planned depressions? Every depression was artificially engineered by purely uh, mechanical means, by suddenly decreasing the money supply, by telling the banks to foreclose all their loans. And uh, in other words, you bankrupt everybody one fell swoop. Well, why do they want to bankrupt everybody? So they could take over their property at one cent on the dollar. These gigantic foreclosures, I mean, we're talking about virtually tens of thousands of homes today in 1993 that are being foreclosed against. Is that part of this conspiracy against middle America by the international banking system or the Federal Reserve System? Uh, that's absolutely correct. You see, the great enemy of the bankers and their conspiracy is an educated, well-informed middle class. They don't worry about the poor people because the poor people do not have enough capital uh, or independence to ever mount any resistance. But the middle class can because the middle class wants to defend it's private homes, it's little cars sitting in the driveway, downsized, of course, the downsized home, the downsized uh, car. These are all products of the banker's conspiracy. I mean, uh, there's no reason why you couldn't drive a car as long as this room, except the bankers want you to have a little car to keep you in your place. That's the whole idea. You know, Eustace, one of the things I can recall 20 years ago or so that gas used to be 25 or 35 cents a gallon, somewhere in there, whether it's premium or if you had on leaded or if you had regular. Now, we go from 25, 35, now it's a dollar 35, dollar 40, whatever it may be. But there was this gigantic boom. And it, I was told back in 1972 that the Federal Reserve of St. Louis determined that they wanted 80% of the food and the fiber that was produced in this country. They wanted that in ownership of about 100,000 corporations. You see, we used to have 40 million farmers in this country, but they wanted to level those farmers down and put it in the form of corporations so they could control this food. And then the second thing was the fuel. But, you know, when I listen to things like that, I think it's so absolutely bizarre. Why would you take the strength of a culture, the farmer that can go out and raise a fine crop of children and give morality and give understanding and close to the soil, why would you take them away from the soil using the means of the Federal Reserve or the twisting of the money and the inflation and deflation? Why would anybody want to do that, Eustace? Well, the bankers do not want to see a strong, viable country or nation anywhere in the world. They want a weak, despairing people uh, who are struggling for their daily bread who could never mount opposition to them. Uh, they're the enemy of every nation in the world. And uh, they work from within to destroy it. As you say, they weaken the country. I mean, why today in uh, the schools is it so important to educate six-year-old uh, students 
on the importance of choosing an alternative lifestyle and becoming homosexuals. Did you know that that was happening? I didn't realize my mic was unmuted all that time. Did you did you know that that far back they were doing that? In a book that he wrote in 1988, he says that same line. That's insane. That's, inc that's so crazy that that agenda has been going on for this long. Most six years old students are not really concerned about what their future sex life is going to be. But they find that the program is so important they've got to... Uh, make them make up their minds by the time they're seven years old that, well, I've decided I'm going to be a homosexual. And then there be, means no children, uh, no, no stable home life, no nothing. So you say that there's all these little conspiracies, it seems like, within a conspiracy, and it, it's meant to drive the morality of America to a very low ebb, the lowest we've been in for forever since our country began? They're conducting war. I mean, you just saw the big shootout at Waco. That's really typical of these people. They want to make war on you. And it's not government. It's the people behind the government. There is no government in the United States. And uh, what you have are these conspirators behind the government. You have uh, Bill Clinton being chosen out of nowhere to be president of the United States, member of the Trilateral Commission, coming out of a backward state like Arkansas, one of the poorest states in the United States, because the Rockefellers went in there and bought it in 1946. Winthrop Rockefeller III owns Arkansas, and he owns Bill Clinton. The Rockefellers own him, lock, stock, and barrel. Interesting to know after the fact. But also, just remember, when you guys are listening to this, understand that Mr. Eustace Mullins was a member of the John Birch Society in its early years. And when another purchase occurred, I believe it was in 63, um, when Nabisco bought them, and... That is when the $10 million in – I don't know what $10 million in 1963 was, but I'm going to find out how much that's worth today. Just imagine that amount of money. But also that's when those directors came in and said, yeah, you got to get rid of Eustace Mullins. And the same thing happened. They bought up the um, – as I had mentioned before in my Instagram post that they he had also been a member of the – oh. It was uh, the Senator Joseph McCarthy like foundation, or I don't, or or society. It was another group that was preserving his name. It was anti-communist, right? When they got bought out by certain similar hands, the first thing they did is say, "You guys have to get rid of Eustace Mullins." Just an interesting side note there. Okay, now we found out Eustace so far that the Federal Reserve itself is not a government agency. Is that correct? Absolutely, not a government agency. But yet they say that the federal that the president of the United States appoints certain people to the Federal Reserve. If he can appoint people to the Federal Reserve, don't we, you and I, as taxpaying citizens, have some control over the Federal Reserve? Well, uh, have you ever uh, suggested a candidate for the Federal Reserve Board uh, to your congressman? No, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> and if you did, how much uh, how much attention would he pay to you? I mean, suppose you said, look, I'd like to see Eustace Mullins on the Federal Reserve Board. So you uh, write your congressman. Here's a man who spent 50 years studying the Federal Reserve System. Why don't you put him on there and uh, let him work with these people? Uh, I can tell you what, your letter would go right in the trash because these people are chosen out of New York and London and Paris. Uh, and uh, their background has to be that they're part of the system or they wouldn't even be considered. Okay. We have a system. We have yes. a system that works against the middle class. Right. And that system, how does it get its money? Where does it 
make its money from? Does it print money? Uh, they have what they call the magical money machine, where you put in a blank piece of paper and crank out a $100 bill. And, of course, uh, uh, con artists used to sell uh, machines like that at county fairs to the uh, suckers. So now these bankers got together and sold that machine to the people of the United States. And we're all the suckers <laughs> for it, I guess, huh? <laughs> well, uh, they put in the blank pieces of paper and they hand out $100 they don't give you the $100. You have to give them $100 worth of labor or real estate for it. In other words, uh, nothing is free. Uh, and uh, in order to perpetuate their ownership of the magical money machine, the Federal Reserve System, they entered into the bill in 1913 when it went to Congress that you and I could never buy a share of stock in the magical money machine. In other words, the people who bought the original stock in 1914 they own it all today. It cannot be bought or sold on any stock exchange because if you own a magical money machine, why would you let the suckers buy it from you? Right. You, you sell them the, the paper. You don't sell them the machine itself. Well, how did they purchase this magical money machine? I mean, they, did they pay somebody off or was it, I mean, you mentioned before Jekyll Island and I heard that there was a no-name club at Jekyll Island. Would you tell us a little bit about that, Eustace Mullins? Well, these are very important bankers who met there secretly in November of 1910. They left Hoboken on a sealed train, and the reporters were there because these were very important people, and the reporters said, where are you going? And they were all shouting and uh, trying to get into the train to ask some questions. The train pulled out. They wouldn't say where they were going. They went to Brunswick, Georgia, which was the uh, stopping place for Jekyll Island, which is just across the uh, inlet there. And uh, they went over to their private club, and they wrote the act in secrecy, and they stipulated it would be called a Federal Reserve System to delude the public. They stipulated that they would own the stock forever. You and I would never be allowed access to this stock. And uh, they set up a money monopoly in violation of Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, which provided the Founding Fathers made sure to guarantee the people of the United States they would have their own money. Congress would have control over the money. So then, after they wrote this secret plan, they had to take it before Congress and persuade Congress to turn over this money power to the private bankers. They did it through bribery, through intimidation, and they got it through just before... They actually put it through after the Christmas vacation started, when some of the opponents left. Congressman Charles Augustus Lindbergh, the father of the aviator, had fought this uh, bill through Congress, uh, he said it establishes a perpetual money trust and our children will be enslaved by this money trust. He said it all in 1913 and it all has come true. So uh, they got the bill through on December the 23rd, 1913, after the opponents had left and uh, they immediately rushed it through. No other bill has ever been passed by Congress under the strange circumstances that the Federal Reserve Act was passed. And Update. They do that all the time now with controversial bills that most people would never, you know, they would be afraid that their constituents would hang them for. They, they do the same type of uh, scheme. Even the New York Times pointed out, they said, never has legislation of such major importance been passed in such circumstances. What about the IRS? Did that come in near that same time? Same year, 1913. 
the income tax amendment was passed in 1913. The Rockefeller Foundation was chartered in 1913. The Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1913 so that we could have a world war a few months later in 1914. All of this, uh, you see, 1913 is a symbolic year because we're dealing with people who have a deep root in the occult and in satanic work. So for them, 1913 was the year that they wanted to forced everything over on the American people, and they did. Now, the IRS, if you have the Internal Revenue Service, which is a collection agency for the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve, because those are two points, those are two of the ten planks of the Communist Manifesto. Would you say that as of 1913, from a legal standpoint for this country, that we were 20% communist at that time? Oh, very much so. This is a communist system. In fact, the Federal Reserve bankers originated communism. That's not generally known. But, uh, and you had the spectacle after the Bolshevik Revolution was perpetrated on the Russian people and they murdered the Tsar and his family. Uh, they murdered the Tsar out of hatred, greed, and envy, which is the basis of all communism. Hatred, greed, and envy. This hatred, greed, and envy is the basis of every government act po uh, passed by Congress in the United States because they hate the middle class, uh, their greed makes them want to seize the assets of the middle class, and uh, they have such envy that they cannot stand for anyone else to be well-dressed, well-educated, or have a nice home. They want, to, they want to reduce us all to the status of Chinese coolies or serfs in uh, old Russia. What do we do? I mean, there must have been some people at that particular time that saw through this, this con game what happened to them? People like, uh, say, Bronson LaFollette from Wisconsin and Charles Lindbergh that you mentioned. What happened to those people? Because they did stand up, some of them, didn't they, Eustace? They did, and after Lindbergh opposed them, uh, they financed mobs to chase him through the streets of Minnesota towns where he was a congressman and to threaten to tar and feather him. He was lucky to escape with his life. They took his books and threw them out in the... Uh, piles in the street and burned them. He wrote books exposing the situation. Uh, you can hardly find those books today. They were burned. Now, you mean to tell me that, that also, would they, is that how they've been doing it? They've been buying people off ever since 1913 to keep their, their game? And I know in the government today there's a request by many congressmen to have an audit of the Federal Reserve. Could that do any harm? Actually, an audit of the Federal Reserve would simply substantiate their legitimacy I mean, uh, you don't want to audit the Mafia. Why would you audit the Federal Reserve? It's an illegal organization to start with. Uh, you don't audit a criminal syndicate. You put it out of business, and you lock up the people who perpetrated this on the American people. Let's go back to Andrew Jackson, because Andrew Jackson threw the bankers out one time, didn't he? He did, indeed. And the country prospered. I've made videos in the past about Andrew Jackson. You'll find them on my Spreaker so it's in the podcast form. I I know they're in there. But if you want to find a book, and it's a very important book I think everybody should read, it's called Andrew the Great, and it's by Michael S. King. And he uh, survived at least two, possibly three, Rothschild's assassination attempts. And the guy was a tough man. One of the guys who tried to shoot him, he ended up beating down with his cane because he was older at that time and he was using a walking stick and he beat the guy with it. What a cool dude. 
Oh, tremendous prosperity. Andrew Jackson, as President of the United States, said to the bankers, Ye are a nest of vipers, and by God I will root you out. And so he, he immediately uh, took all government funds out of the second bank of the United States, which was a central bank, and of course they went bankrupt because they needed that money for their operating capital. And in fact, today, every bank and every business in the United States is operating on the Social Security taxes that they uh, collect from their workers by extortion because without that capital, they couldn't exist. Now, what about the Rockefellers and the Kuhn Loeb's and some of the, the Lazarus brothers? Who actually owns the stock? What are some of the names of the, the people that own the stock in this Federal Reserve System? Well, you know, I was the first person to ever publish those names. In fact, Congressman Wright Patman, who was chairman of the banking committee <clears throat> of the House back in the 1950s, and I used to visit him as often. He was a great admirer of my book. I have his letter reproduced in the book. And um, he said, you know, Eustace, I'm sitting in his office, and uh, he said, there are two things I need. He was getting old. He said, there are two things I want to do before I die. I want to find out who owns the stock of the Federal Reserve Banks, and I want to audit them while he died without achieving each, either objective. And at that time, I myself had not completed my research to find out who the owners were. And I finally found out about 10 years after Wright-Patman died, and that information is in there. And, of course, no surprise that uh, the owners of the stock since 1914 are the big rich, the elitists, the Rockefellers, the Harrimans, the Warburgs, the Schiffs, and in fact... Uh... So this is the reason why nothing's ever going to happen to Adam Schiff. Because Adam Schiff owns everything, so stop talking about, oh, we're going to get them all arrested, and blah, blah, blah. Who's going to try them? Their own buddies that wear those black skirts that we call judges? The ones that are in the black dress? That guy? Those guys? The, the, the ones that are basically still wearing the priest robes from the old, from the old days? Those are the guys who are going to rat on their brothers? You know that they have a higher loyalty to them than they do to you, right? Based on their fraternity, their secret society. There's no way. And with that kind of money, they already own all of the machinations that we think are legitimate governmental and judicial organizations. They are not. So all this stuff, oh, Hillary bring the justice, blah, blah, blah. If the people, the people do not rise up themselves and set things right, hold people accountable, and bring back consequence to people's actions, it will not happen on its own. It will not happen on its own. I repeat it will not happen on its own. These types of stories that I'm showing you with Eustace Mullins, the videos that I share, the the podcasts that I do, they're all to help you understand that very thing. That unless we, not being lazy, but being warriors of God, defend and protect the innocent and hold evil accountable, evil won't hold itself accountable and you have to get hip to who the evil people are because they're the ones telling you how to live your life and diminishing its value rapidly, your quality of life. Okay? Governor Clinton, the representative of the little man, is now going to send Pamela Harriman to uh, Europe as an ambassador. <laughs> Tell us about uh, how do the Harrimans and... Tell us about Prescott Bush and George Bush. I mean, 
if this is going to be a conspiracy, it has to kind of go up the ladder, doesn't it? I mean, are these families that kind of work themselves in and then just stay there forever? Well, that's absolutely true because in order to have reliable people, you have to have families which continue generation after generation. <clears throat> I call them the dynastic families of the world order because these are true dynasties. You know, the, the old monarchical dynasties of Europe are pretty well gone except for the British royal family. And the reason uh, that they are still in power is they represent the old Canaanites, which go back 5,000 years. Bam, right back to the ball cult again. Uh, the black nobility. And uh, in fact, most of the wealthy families of the world today are, in, uh, well, I'd say all of them are in the black nobility. They're all interrelated. Uh, they have arranged marriages to protect the money, you see. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have common goals. They have a common program. So no one is going to get in there and uh, upset the apple cart. Now, sometimes they marry outside of their family uh, patterns, but uh, the people they marry are playboys. In other words, they could go to the Riviera, they can have their yachts, but they never interfere with the program of the world order. So we're talking about the power of money, I Which, guess, huh? Well, it's the power of power because uh, money is power. You cannot issue money uh, unless you have power. I mean, I cannot hand you a piece of blank paper and say, uh, listen, this is a $100 bill, now give me $100 for it. In order for you to do that, I have to have power over you. Mm -hmm. So the power comes first, and the money is simply a medium of exchange, a medium of control. And in fact, uh, uh, the money that we have today is an obligation. It's a uh, promissory note, promise to pay. In other words, the government has no money. You and I have no money, unless we have gold and silver. What we have are promissory notes, which, by the way, Paul Warburg was so brilliant that in the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, he stipulated, and it's right in the act, you could read it, that these printed pieces of paper, which the private bankers are printing for their own profit, are then to become full obligations of the government of the United States, in other words, of the taxpayer. They can print all the billions of dollars they want and as soon as they print that money, you and I owe that money. Not only do we owe it, but we've got to start paying interest on it immediately. In other words, they can take a thin piece of paper, write a $1,000 bill, print that $1,000 bill, and they have created this money out of nothing. Are you telling me that? They have testified before Congress that they create the money out of nothing. Because they had to testify that because uh, where else would it come from? It comes out of nothing. It's, it's bookkeeping uh, ledger entries. In other words, uh, the Federal Reserve stockholders, these wealthy families, will enter into a ledger, $1 billion. And they say, now, government of the United States, American people, you owe us $1 billion. And if you don't start paying interest immediately, we'll foreclose on you. That's the way to do it, huh? <laughs> That's the How way. How come you and I couldn't have thought of that game? <laughs> well, we should have thought of it first. Now, now we're out of the picture, see? But it's my understanding in the Bible there were two things that Jesus said was an abomination. And the second thing was usury. That's right, usury. And is that the reason that our country is so indebted today because of this usury system by a group of people that print money for nothing and we pay in bondage to keep the system going? Well, that's exactly correct. And my mentor, Ezra Pound, who started me uh, uh, on a campaign to study the Federal Reserve System in 1948, and uh, commissioned me to go to the Library of Congress. He said, see what you can find out about the Federal Reserve System. 
Well, I didn't give a hoot about the Federal Reserve System. I was going to write the great American novel, and uh, I had no interest. I didn't even have a bank account. You have, right time. here. Well, <laughs> I guess it is. It's more interesting than a novel. And so uh, I went down there, and I found out it was a criminal conspiracy, and I came back. See, Ezra was a political prisoner held in an insane asylum for 13 and a half years without trial. I finally got a congressman interested in his plight, and uh, that opened the door. He walked out a free man, just like that. You have to have someone to intercede for you because you're dealing with a diabolical government which responds only to force or the threat of exposure. And that's what Congressman Usher Burdick did. He went on the floor of Congress. He said, why is the government holding this man? Well, they had no answer, so they released him. So you knew a poet by the, Ezra, by the name of Ezra Pound. He commissioned you to write the first book on the Federal Reserve. He was incarcerated at that time in the United States Penal institution or whatever, but the point is that Mr. Burdick, congressman from North Dakota, he was the one who was able to have Ezra Pound released. Is that he correct? was, he was indeed, and that's why you always need someone who can intercede for you, because you're dealing with a diabolical government. If you don't have some way of inter having someone intercede with you, you're helpless. Now, Eustace, we have the Federal Reserve System. Does the Federal Reserve System itself I happen to think that I've been patriotic most of my life. But the more that I see about this government, I'm not talking about the country because I love my country, but the government to me seems more and more diabolical. And I've seen my friends in business, good quality, hardworking, middle businessmen that are not in business anymore. And something has to be, I mean, there was some reason that they're not in business. It seems to me the giant corporations now own the majority of the wealth of the country. Am I imagining things, or is the small businessman, small farmer, small select individual, are they being financially wiped out? Well, they're, uh, they're being wiped out by the Federal Reserve System through the Internal Revenue Service. Now, I have a friend named Paul Desfosses. He and I travel around the country lecturing together. He was a an IRS agent for 20 years. And the program, he told me, the program of the IRS for the past 10 years has been to close down every small business, every independent, privately owned farm in the United States because they, it's easier to control people who have, have no assets. Who have Gee, that's not coming to fruition right now, getting rid of the farmers by all these other means that are so indirect, like fuel to get the you know the produce away in a, in a cost-effective manner to get it off the market the fact that there's droughts pretty much everywhere or bad crop seasons high temperatures all kinds of stuff that it's seemingly manipulated hmm you have to work for a salary for somebody oh yeah then there's a psychopath out there who's going around and buying up all the land so that he can probably do nothing with it because land in the future will be how you become wealthy on carbon credits. And they intend well, why to... Why would the government do that, Eustace? For control. They want the Fortune 500 to own everything in the United States to control all business uh, so that they don't have to deal with individuals. You see, the federal government has no power over an individual. People don't realize that. You don't even have to talk to a, an internal revenue agent because Article uh, 1, Section 8 of the Congress says... Congress shall have power to provide for the common defense 
that is, raise armies, and for the common welfare of the United States. Well, the United States means the federal entity. So Congress, no federal entity, has any power over the individual citizen. Only the states can deal with its citizen. You know, I, looking back, Eustace, in my childhood, and I'd come home, and, and you'd see in most homes in, or cities, in, in, uh, whether it was in Wisconsin or Georgia or, or California or New York or wherever, you'd see nice homes with a picket fence around. You'd see a man coming home after work with a lunch bucket, and he was raising three or four or five children. Normally, his wife didn't work. He had probably one car in the garage. He had a nice bus system where he could go to and from work. He had a nice paycheck, and he could actually support his family. One person could support the whole family. And there was silver. That was one of the commodities of the exchange. And you had gold. And I guess even partially at that time. But the value of the money seemed to be so strong in comparison to what we have. Now, we've gone from this situation, Eustace, where a man could stand up and feed his family and be proud, to today we have sometimes two and three and four people working in a family just to support the same lifestyle that my father produced for our family 40 years ago. Now, has the Federal Reserve, does it have anything to do with this change in lifestyle or the way we have to work so hard just to make ends meet today? Oh, this has been a deliberately engineered program whereby the wife has to go out and earn a living. She cannot stay home and raise the children. Uh, they want the state to control the children. In fact, Hillary Clinton is in the White House today to absolutely ensure that the parents will no longer have any say-so on the life of an American child. They are to become wards of the state. They are to be totally controlled by the state. In other words, after... Uh, a man and a wife has a child, uh, they no longer will have any authority over that child. The state will have total authority. Do you know that CPS has taken children away because a kid, a child, complained to a neighbor that their parents, like good parents would, to instill value in them, made me do chores, and the kid didn't mean anything by it. Don't We can't blame him. But because that happened... That psychopathic neighbor called CPS, and that family doesn't have their children anymore, and still doesn't. And this is just one story of fucking thousands a year that happened, because when Hillary Clinton, since he brought this up, and she was the one spearheading this Adoption and Safe Families Act of 1997, that's when they decided that they were going to give cash bonus incentives to these corrupt Already corrupt, already thieving, already stealing. And when my stepfather comes on again, he's going to tell you just the absolute ripoff that nonprofit organizations are, that they are completely controlled by major corporations and that they just use it to funnel money and steal and steal and steal and take government funding and everything else and they just put it right in their pocket. Nothing good. They do no good. They do no good. Okay? They sometimes don't even have a legitimate business going to help doing whatever they're saying they're going to do, like AIDS research, for example. It's an empty building, but they have money, millions of dollars funneled to that corporation. That's a ghost company. Okay, so anyway, moving back to what I was saying, the, um, the CPS, DCS, whatever, they are given cash incentives for how long a person stays in, child stays in, child, in uh, foster care, 
whether it's if it has Down syndrome, well, then it's even more innocent because that's even that's even more good for their sick little devices, right? So that that one's worth even more. But if it's uh, but they want good stock children. They don't want crack babies. They want they want the ones that other people will want on the auction block when they go buy their next victim. So or when they load up a foster family, you know, bunch of dirtbags who don't care about children, but they have ten of them because they're getting money every month. Those people. Those people will steal children from good families because they get money. And now they're using it to balance their budget because they already steal everything that they're given to them by our taxes. So now they're using child theft money to balance their annual budgets. That is a fact. And I made a story. I made a, I made a bunch of videos about this uh, in succession. One of them was about Nancy Schaefer from Georgia. And that one is important that nobody paid attention to. The other one was about Baby Cyrus, uh, where I had Diego Rodriguez on. His grandson was stolen, and thank God he had political connections, and he had a, a, a name out there, and he was able to you know, get people and in, in great quantities to show up and protest and get upset because that's what you need to do. The community has to hold people responsible, accountable, and make them concerned. You know, maybe this one isn't worth it, Okay. Wouldn't you want that kind of support if they come after your family? That's why everybody needs that, and not everybody has that. Because people suck. Okay? People suck. You can't even, Most people don't even know what their neighbors are, and it's probably a good thing. Because if you tell them too much, they'll probably rat you out to somebody or another. Not to try to, make you de- not, not, not to, try to deter you from anything, but I remember being a kid, and I could ride up the, my bike forever down our very vacant road where my grandfather owned most of the land on one side of the road and what neighbors we did have we probably you know my grandfather parsed out the land and sold them in chunks i could go anywhere and those people would keep an eye on me like good neighbors would they wouldn't be there to defile me and they sure as hell wouldn't be there to spy on what my family was up to that's not what we did back then whole different story now especially when you incentivize a bunch of people who are powerless and already meager and tell them you know you're doing a good thing. You're, you're, you're helping stop the spread if you turn in your neighbor. Right? It sucks. It sucks. Well, that's, of course, the most bizarre thing that I have ever heard in my life. But let's, let's take it one step further. He wasn't talking to now, me. Now, we know there's a Federal Reserve System. We know also that it's privately owned. The stock is privately owned. You and I could never purchase that stock. Nobody in America except this little elitist core, they make billions of dollars, and the majority of the American middle class is suffering from it. We owe four, over $4 trillion in debt, huge budgets. The government doesn't seem to respond because they're paid off. Would you say that they're paid off one way or another, most of these congressmen and senators? They're all paid off. Well, who did uh, Bill Clinton bring to Washington as his new staff? He got the top insiders, the top lobbyists, the top lawyers in Washington. These are people who are accustomed to earning a half million dollars a year. People like that are easy to control because they want to go on earning a half million dollars a year, $10,000 a week. And uh, when you pay people that kind of money, you own them. They're never going to object. I don't care. If you tell them, go down there to Texas and, uh, and uh, murder a bunch of children in a little church, they'll do it. Now, Eustace, what if we could change this system? What if we took the Federal Reserve and we went back to where our government 
with good, solid congressmen, non-lawyers, were running our republic. How long do you think it would take for this country to get back on its feet, be awesome. independently wealthy, get rid of its indebtedness, and have money enough so each family and jobs enough could support themselves and live in a substantial standard of living. How long would it take, do you think? Well, it, uh, you couldn't do it overnight. It would take about six weeks. <laughs> in six weeks, you're saying if we did get our government back, if we got that Federal Reserve back, and I understand that there's a method we can get that Federal Reserve back. Tell us about that, Eustace. Well, you see, as I sopped to the congressmen who still were, to were not totally convinced about the uh, wisdom of having a Federal Reserve system passed by Congress, um, the very last part of the act, Section 34, says Congress uh, retains the right to alter or repeal this act at any time. Now, all that means is that language means that tomorrow Congress can meet and say, well, let's buy back the Federal Reserve stock, $144 million, uh, which, by the way, if they appropriated the $144 million to buy back the stock of the Federal Reserve, they would wipe out a $4 trillion debt. That'd be quite a bargain, wouldn't it? I would think that would be about the bargain of, the, of a, every century that I know of since time began. And we need a bargain. But uh, that's how simple it is. You see, regardless of all the damage that has been done by these people, by their insidious plotting, by their paranoid conspiracies, uh, that can be corrected. The American people are still sound. I have total faith in the people of this country. I... I think they really just need to know the truth, Eustace, and from that truth, I believe that if they knew the truth, that they'd make the correct decisions, don't you think? Well, why do you think the Federal Reserve bankers control uh, the major television uh, networks? Because they only want their propaganda to go out to the people. They realize that three days on television could inform all the American people of everything that's gone on. Now, Eustace, you and I have been talking briefly here now. In the next couple, three minutes, Tell us just a thumbnail sketch of what we've learned about the Federal Reserve System. Well, we've learned it's a criminal syndicate. Uh, see, the, the American people know the mafia is a criminal syndicate, but the mafia is not doing the damage to the American people that the Federal Reserve is. So, uh, therefore, we go after this criminal syndicate, we put them out of business, and what we do is we liberate the people. It would be a new revolution. Okay, we have the new revolution, we take the Federal Reserve system back, we put people to work, and the reason they go to work is because they have sound money after that. Is that correct? That's correct. They get a return for their labor. You see, the income tax is a tax on your labor. It's a tax on your property. It is not a tax on income. There is no such thing as income. Uh, what you have is the product of your labor, and that's what they're uh, stealing from you. I really think, if, I really think, Eustace, that we could have such tremendous building and construction across this country. If there was a sound money system, people would be building homes, they'd be building their vacation areas, they would be at work. And to me, the biggest thing that this system, the Federal Reserve System, has taken from us as a country and as a family and as a group, and that is the hope for the future. Because today there doesn't seem to be much hope. In other words, you have health problems for the country, you have all crime, you have rampant, everything I think, though, can be related, whether it's the drugs or the SNLs, I think those things can all be related to the Federal Reserve. Do you think that? 
Oh, I certainly do. And uh, the adult middle class is totally convinced there is no hope today, but the young people have not quite realized it yet, and that's why the young people are our hope, because uh, they have no idea how grim things really are. The great Bobby Lee and Eustace Mullins, everybody. What a great, great, great little show that was. Very informative. Eustace just has a knack about just being wholesome with everything he does. Bobby Lee, no different there. Good stuff. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you a little funny stuff here, and you're going to be, no way, that can't be, right? And I'm going to be like, yeah, way. And then you'd be like, no way. And I'm going to be like, yeah, way. Well, I was curious, so I went to a place, usdinflation.com. All right, it's a it's an inflation chart, and you just type in numbers, and you have to assume that or accept that what they were are t- reporting back to you on is true, and then you have to assume that during those years that politics weren't manipulating what the perception of inflation was or wasn't at that time. Okay, so. In 1963, so let's, let's just go through the, the chronology here because that's important. In 1958, Robert Welch, Robert Welch founded the John Birch Society, okay? And in 1963, five years later, so five years, it may have actually stood for what it meant, okay? But five years later, in 1963... National Biscuit Corporation, as I suspected, is in fact Nabisco now, known as Nabisco now. And NBC, I guess, is what probably maybe their their stock number or whatever, you know. Their, anyway, so in 1963, $10,800,000 is what they received. In today's money, adjusting for inflation, it would have been like getting $99 million for their company that apparently was only worth about $200,000 at the time. So that's not adjusted for inflation. So $10,800,000 is what they received. And that would would be the same as getting $99 million today. $99,050,000 basically. Okay, so then I got curious and I thought to myself, well... What is the inflation like from year to year? Because to me that sounds a little, uh, little, little, little worrisome, right? Because I mean that's a huge increase. And granted, 1963 seems like a long time ago, but from then to now, that's a big, huge jump, right? So you would need 80 million dollars more, 88 million dollars more to get the same as you, you know what I mean, to have the same buying power. It's 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 pretty sad. So I was looking at it from year to year, and I found something quite interesting. From 2020 to 2021, there was a $1.36 decline in the buying value. Buying value, okay? That doesn't seem, you know, what's, what's $1.36? I mean, it's not in the right direction, but it's not a lot, right? So I was like, what are other years like? Well, it's from 2014 to 2015, it was only 76 cents in a decline, okay? Well, 2010 to 2011, I'm just picking numbers here to see what they were. Uh, it was a $1.50 decline. 
So you had a dollar fifty less in buying power from the same hundred dollars as what I was using as a as a scale. So from two thousand seventeen to two thousand eighteen, it was a two dollars and eleven cent decline on your hundred dollars. From two thousand eighteen to two thousand nineteen, it was a dollar ninety one in decline. Okay, you know whatever. So then I was like, okay, so hmm, what was it just last year, from two thousand twenty to two thousand twenty one? So that was the year, really the whole full year prior, right? Dollar thirty six decline. Okay, well, what was it from two thousand twenty one to two thousand twenty two? Seven dollars and four cents decline in one year's time from two thousand twenty one to two thousand. So your hundred dollars buys you seven dollars and four cents less than it did last year. Okay. And if you want to go back into history and start asking yourself, okay, so did it always decline? In 1916 to 1917, granted, the world was at war. Our value of our dollar decreased $12.62. But that's not all. (laughs) No, no, that's not all. From 1917 to 1918, that already decreased dollar went from, and this is on a $100 scale, okay? From 1970 to 1918, lost another $18.10 in buying value. The following year, from 1918 to 1919, it lost another $20.44. So from 1916 to 1919, you're looking at about a $50, $51 decrease in the value of $100 in money. And your and your fake funny money from the Federal Reserve. They only took power in 1913. This scale only goes back to 1914. You can't go back in years before that because before that you were backed by silver and gold. And guess what? That's static. I mean, in the sense that other things can fluctuate, but that only increases the value of the gold. If 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 money declines, gold goes up, silver goes up supposed to be when it's not suppressed and, 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 and manipulated by the Rothschilds who do all the adjustments daily. But in, in a world where they're not involved in it, yes, it would, it, would, it would balance out whatever the deficit in the, you know, what they call the, the uh, faith in the currency, faith in the dollar is, right? So I found that very interesting. I found it very sad that we're not even done with 2022 yet and we've already lost $7.04 in buying value yet everything costs more. Well, that's probably the reason why as well, right? Because uh, deflation would actually be, things would go down in price hopefully and when inflation occurs, then you have everything costing more, right? And then, you know, a good way to push inflation is to keep on increasing the minimum wage so that the the cheapest goods cost more to make because of the labor involved. And then you wonder why automation is a thing. Okay, so other things about the um, the John Birch Society and Robert Welch. Robert Robert's candy company was taken out by the Depression, basically. So he worked for his brother's company. And from what I gathered, from what I heard, he sold the remains of his company to his brother as well. His brother already was in the candy company, but he also bought whatever was of Robert's and Robert went to work for him. 
So James Welch was given, after the sale to Nabisco, for that $10 million, $10,800,000, which, remember, was like getting handed $99,048,000 in today's money. He was also made director. So it, the, the incentives didn't stop there. He was also made director of Nabisco after that. So for the, from 1963 to 1978, James, the one who actually owned the company at the time, not only just received that huge amount of money, but he also was made director. So more money. I don't know what his salary was, but for that many years, 63 to 78, he was made the director of Nabisco. How often do they buy people out and then make them the director? I'm sure it happens, but it seems a little... Un, un, uh, usually when they buy somebody out, they're also firing everybody from the previous company and putting their own people in, you know? Because they know they're they know they're how to lockstep to them already. They're already trained to do what they want them to do. They don't have bad habits that they need to correct and re-educate. Yeah, those are all ominous words, by the way. Now, another thing to understand about that is that Robert Welch was an employee of his brother, right? So when he got out. What makes you think that that partner that that relationship of he does what his brother tells him didn't continue? Because if he's getting all the money, and Robert Wells basically says no, Nabisco had nothing to do with the Rockefellers at the time, which is a blatant patent lie. But why would he say that, and why would it matter if it was his brother's company that was bought? How would that affect John Birch Society if, unless and in fact did? affect the John Birch Society and how they were funded. So he basically openly admitted that that money went to steer the John Birch Society a different direction five years into its existence. So in 63, the takeover occurred. In 63, JFK was assassinated. We just went over what they said about the JFK assassination and saying that it was a lone nut, Soviet KGB, blah, 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 you know, Lee Harvey Oswald, who can shoot... Magic bullets that bounces off this way, comes off that way, and, you know, does a flippy flip, a, a tilt the world, a pirouette, and then lands into the guy's head. Yeah, sure does. Anyway. And what I've seen from the Zapruder film is a tuft of smoke coming up right above Jackie. Well, bullets don't p burst smoke out on impact. They, it happens from the barrel. And I'm saying that she took his head, put it in her lap with a little gun in her hand and blew his brains out. And that's why you see that flap of skin flap out outwardly facing out of the car, you know, outweighed from the car. Because an impact wound normally doesn't do that. It doesn't make something flip up. It would either push it in, usually, uh, not blast outward. Okay? Just saying. Just saying. The way that skin flap, it looks like an exit wound. Exit wounds are usually messier, usually bigger. It's horrible to watch that. I hate seeing it. But he was also apparently in a back brace. It made him kind of like immobile. He couldn't really move very much because he had all kinds of elements to that story that just don't seem to add up right. And Jackie was, you know, Jesuit Jackie, the little assassin, possibly, because that's what Jesuits are. And so are the CIA. So <laughs> who knows? Moving right along with the whole uh, John Birch Society, though, thing thing though Birch's pro-communist society is pretty much what I got from that 
after listening, reading, and seeing all this. And I think it's uh, important to at least let people know this, see this information, let them read the articles from themselves. They don't have to change their mind, but they should at least sink in over time a little bit of doubt. And if that's all we can hope for, then at least it's something. But I like what Eustace said at the towards the end there. He said, Section 34 of the of the act says congress can alter and repeal the act at any time talking about the federal reserve act and that if all they had to do is ever buy back the all they ever had to do was buy back the original stocks then they would wipe out now it's like what 30 trillion dollar debt for a few million a few hundred million dollars well played sir well played hope that happens but anyway that was my show for tonight hope you guys enjoyed it if you see these things above my head, if you are watching the video, tippystream.com forward slash ball hyphen busters forward slash donation. This computer sucks, and I need to get a couple more things for this sound system to work better. We're getting some really important guests coming up. Uh, we already had, had awesome guests. Awesome. Awesome. Amazing people. Everybody's value is perfectly good. I don't care if you're known or not known. It's what you have in your heart that matters. It just ha- it just so happens that Dr. Artis is both. He's well-known, and he has a heart of gold and good intentions for and, and goodwill toward humanity. And that I can definitely always get behind and respect. All right, so Dr. Artis is usually um, scheduled for Monday. If he doesn't make it every time, it's just because he has other things to do. But we have him, and that's amazing that we do every Monday. Every Monday he's scheduled for 11 a.m. my time. So that's fantastic and phenomenal. This particular Monday, I, it looks like we're also going to have Dr. Tal Braun, and that's what my brain was trying to say, but my mouth said something different. Brocus area, broken brocus area. And that's the part of your brain they claim is uh, responsible for speech, in case you were wondering. I read Broca's Brain by Carl Sagan a long time ago. That's why I know. And I watched, what was that, Six Six Feet Under? Was that the name of the show that had uh, the guy who played Dexter on it before before he was Dexter? And when he was a mortician? I think that's what it was. And uh, his brother had a problem. He had a stroke and it affected his brocus area towards the end of the final season. And what else do we got? Um, so, and on Friday, Friday, oh my God. Holy moly. Dr. Peter Glidden. If anybody doesn't know that name, please look it up. Please look it up. Um, Dr. Dave Janda has had him on his show numerous times. Operation Freedom. He's had it on there. Dr. Dave Janda uh, respects him. I've seen Dr. Peter Glidden on very many documentaries in the past um, talking about nutrition to fight and prevent cancer and it's an amazing thing to know that that's out there available and people don't know about it thanks to Rockefeller once again. So we can fix that though. With with things like this, videos like this, platforms like this, we can make it and then we can share it and we can get it to our loved ones and maybe save them. I wish I was – I wish I had a time machine. I could go back to when I was like 12, 11 years old before my aunt ever went out to – get her first chemo for what they claimed was leukemia and now knowing what Dr. Artis said 
Who even knows? Maybe they're just cashing in on her because they already told her she had mono for a year. They told her they they took they removed her gallbladder right after having a, a child, and then uh, they're like, "Oh well, you keep coming back to us. We might as well cash in." Mother of three, young mother of three. Why don't we just tell you you have leukemia and then we can just milk your insurance and and then kill you in the process. So in the next two and a half years, they got rich and she got killed. And I had to watch her suffer throughout that. And I was too young and stupid to have had this information. There's child prodigies out there, so I don't give myself excuses for this. You know, the internet may not have been what it was back then, but that was my aunt, for God's sake, and I loved her like a mother. So, yeah, still pretty pissed about that, you sons of bitches. And, uh, yeah, the hits didn't stop there. And they won't, and they, I'm sure, affected everybody, even if you don't even realize it. They've been, they've been killing off your loved ones prematurely for a long, long time. So let's do things like these videos, let's do things like these shows, and let's try to get that automatic trust in establishment things to end so that people at least ask questions people at least are skeptical they don't just buy or accept or go right into certain types of institutions fully trusting and not and and shutting off their discernment and walking straight into in danger let's try to alter that let's try to fix that so that we can see our family and spend the time because it is the most precious thing out there. They want to see your children grow up. You want to see them grow. If it's your child that is the one that's ill, my God, I can't even imagine. Got enough traumas. Got got enough PTSD from things that did happen to me. I don't need any more. You know, I think the reason why people sit in this chair like I do, it's probably because they either know it, don't know it. Probably if you talk to them long enough, they probably figure out, yeah, maybe I probably do have some sort of PTSD because that's what actually motivates them without them even knowing. It's like trying to put a lid on the trauma of daily life in this society that is trying to murder us on a constant daily basis and getting more and more aggressive about it every day. This, this is what we do because we don't know what else to do. And it's something because information, if taken seriously, will turn into action eventually, at least in the decisions that people make, and it will make a difference. It will make a difference. And if you think these types of videos will make a difference to other people, like for me, I made this for my father, and I hope that he comes across it, and I hope he'll actually, when I send it to him, he'll he'll appreciate it. Um, and it's only set out of love, and it's only done out of love. You know, I don't want to see anybody else be led astray. I'm sick of the lies. And one that one of my earlier introduction songs was from One King Down and it was you know, that's a part where he stops on I'm so fed up with the lies. Except he screams it because it's Albany, New York called hardcore. So it's uh ni- circa nineteen ninety six or something like that. Ninety seven? Yeah. Good stuff though. Alright guys, that's all I have for you tonight. Hope you enjoyed it. Share share like later. Be sure to subscribe to my channel if you haven't already. Cause subscribing makes you feel good.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power. Loyalty. And luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.